Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 22, the second part of the history of Elam. Three weeks ago, after many episodes, I wrapped up the Sumerians and then covered the ancient city of Haran. If you missed any of those episodes, you should really go back and give them a listen. Then, last week, I began the history of the Elamites, ending when the Sumerian Renaissance began. This week, I'm wrapping up the history of the Elamites, one of the Sumerians' chief rivals for many centuries. Remember, the Bible tells us that Abraham was Sumerian, and very early in his story, he fights the Elamites. Similar to last week, this episode will explore how the Elamites were covered in the Bible, as well as their history as we now understand it. So let's get started. In about 2070 BC, the Sumerian king Shulgi retook the city of Susa and the surrounding region. Then, during the first part of the rule of the Shamshaki dynasty, Alam was under intermittent attack from the Sumerians of Mesopotamia and also from the Gutians from present-day northwestern Iran and Turkey, alternating periods of war with periods of peace. Shusin of Ur, for example, gave one of his daughters in marriage to a prince of Ashan. But the power of the Sumerians was quickly waning. Ibisin in the 21st century BC did not manage to penetrate far into Elam, and in 2004 BC the Elamites allied with the people of Susa, and led by King Kenetu, the sixth king of Shemeshik, managed to take Ur and lead Ibisin into captivity thus ending the third dynasty of Ur. The Akkadian kings of Isin, the successor state to Ur, did manage to drive the Elamites out of Ur, rebuild the city, and return the statue that was called Nana that the Elamites had plundered. The seceding dynasty, the Aparti, from about 1970 to 1770 BC, existed at the same time as the old Assyrian Empire. This period is confusing, and difficult to reconstruct from historical records. It was apparently founded by a ruler named Epiparti I. During this time, Susa was under Elamite control, but Akkadian-speaking Mesopotamian states such as Larsa and Isin continually tried to retake the city. Around 1850 BC, Kudur-Mabuk, apparently king of another Akkadian state to the north of Larsa, managed to install his son, Waradsin, on the throne of Larsa, and Warradsin's brother, Rimsen, succeeded him and conquered much of southern Mesopotamia for Larsa. Noteworthy Eparte dynasty rulers in Alam during this time included Sir Uktaku, who ruled around 1850 BC and who entered various military coalitions to repel the power of the southern Mesopotamian states. Also, there was Saiparla Kupak, who for some time was the most powerful person in the area respectfully addressed as father by Mesopotamian kings such as Zimralim, Amari, Samshadi Adda I of Assyria, and even Haberabai of Babylon. There was also Kudur Nahunta, who plundered the temples of southern Mesopotamia, the north being under the control of the old Assyrian Empire. But Elamite influence in southern Mesopotamia did not last. Around 1760 BC, Hammurabi drove out the Elamites, overthrew Rimsen of Larsa, and established a short-lived Babylonian empire in Mesopotamia. Little is known about the latter part of this dynasty, 
Since sources again become rare with the Kassite rule of Babylon beginning around 1595 BC, the Middle Elamite period began with the rise of the Anshanite dynasties around 1500 BC. Their rule was characterized by what is now referred to as the Elamization of Susa, and the kings took the title of King of Ashan and Susa. This title is thought to indicate that the two regions were united, at least politically. While the first of these dynasties, the Kid in Uids, continued to use the Akkadian language frequently in their inscriptions, the succeeding Ighagids and Shurturakids used Elamite with increasing frequency. At the same time, the Elamite language and culture grew in importance in Susinia. The Kid in Uids, who ruled from about 1500 to 1400 BC, were essentially a group of five rulers with uncertain links to each other. They are identified by the use of the older title King of Susa and of Ashan, and by calling themselves Servant of Kerwasher, an Elamite deity of the time, thought to also show the introduction of their religion to this region. After the Kidanuids, the Igihalkids ruled, which lasted from about 1400 to 1210 BC. Ten of their rulers are known, but there were possibly more. Some of these rulers married Kassite princesses. The Kassites were a group from the Zargos Mountains who had taken Babylonia shortly after its sacking by the Hittite Empire in 1595 BC. All of this occurred after the fall of the Third Dynasty of Ur. By the way, if you're wondering why it seems that my timeline skips around a bit, just remember that I'm following the order found in the narrative of Genesis. That's why I covered the Sumerians into the first millennium BC, but then backed up by thousands of years for Alam. The Kassite king of Babylon, Kuri Galzu II, temporarily occupied Alam around 1320 BC. Later, around 1230 BC, another Kassite king, Kashtelash IV, fought Elam unsuccessfully. After that, the Kassite Babylonian power decreased as they became dominated by the northern Mesopotamian Middle Assyrian Empire. Kidin Kutran of Alam turned the Kassites away yet again when he defeated Enlil Nadinshumi in 1224 BC and Adeshuma Inida around 1220 BC. A bit later, the Shaturakids came into power and ruled from about 1210 to 1100 BC. Under them, the Elamite Empire reached its zenith. Shaturkaknak Kentuti and his three sons, whose names I'm not even going to try to pronounce, had frequent military campaigns in the Kassite Babylonia when they were also being attacked by the Assyrians. At the same time, the Elamites were building lavish temples in Susa and all across their empire. Shurtuknakotutui raided Babylonia, carrying home to Susa the spoils of war, such as the statues of Marduk and Mishtanishu, the Mishtanishu obelisk, the still of Hammurabi, and the still of Narumsen. I'll post photos of some of these on the podcast Facebook page. It's worth your time to at least see what I'm talking about. In 1158 BC, after much of Babylonia had been seized by Ashur-dan I of Assyria and Shurtuknakatuati, the Elamites defeated the Kassites for the last time, killing the Kassite king of Babylon, Zabashu Idin, and replacing him with his eldest son, Kutir-nak-hunti. 
who held it no more than three years before being run off by the native Akkadian-speaking Babylonians. He was never heard from again. The Elamites then briefly came into conflict with Assyria, managing to take the Assyrian city of Arapa, located at modern-day Kirkirk, Iraq. Before being ultimately defeated and having a treaty forced upon them by Shurdan I, Kurtudak Hunti's son, Kutathish in Shashinak, was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar I of Babylon, who sacked Susa and returned the statue of Marduk, but who was then defeated himself by the Assyrian king Ashuresh Ishi. The Elamite king then fled to Ashan, but later returned to Susa, and his brother, Shehelna Hamara Lagamur may have succeeded him as the last king of the Shakrutid dynasty. Following his death, the power of the Elamite Empire apparently began a rapid decline. Very little is known of the period from about 1100 to 770 BC. It is thought that Ashan was still at least partially Elamite. There appeared to have been unsuccessful alliances of Elamites with Babylonians, Chaldeans, and other peoples against the powerful Neo-Assyrian Empire, who ruled from about 911 to 605 BC. The Babylonian king Mar-Biti-Apa-Ushur, who ruled from 984 to 979 BC, is thought to have been of Elamite origin, and Elamites are recorded to have fought unsuccessfully with the Babylonian king Marduk-Basha-Ibiki against the Assyrian forces under Shamshi added the fifth in the mid-9th century BC. I tell you, some of these names are real tongue twisters. Other than that, they disappeared from the historic record until 770 BC. I'll cover what happened then in a later episode. But maybe, and just as a teaser, I'll note that Elam was worthy of a mention in the last part of Jeremiah 49. This passage serves as an apocalyptic warning for Elam, stating that Elam will be scattered to the four winds of the earth. This prophecy has been dated to around 600 BC. Susa is also mentioned in the Bible many times in Esther, but also once each in Nehemiah and Daniel. It is believed that both Daniel and Nehemiah lived in Susa during the Babylonian captivity of the 6th century BC. Esther became queen there, married to King Ahasuerus, who is also thought to have been Xerxes I, and she saved the Jews from genocide. A tomb presumed to be that of Daniel is located in that area that is known as Shush Daniel. However, the current structure is actually a much later construction that has been dated to the 19th century, probably built around 1871, and that's A.D. Susa is further mentioned in the pseudepigraphic Book of Jubilees in chapters 8 and 9, as one of the places within the inheritance of Shem and his eldest son, Alam. I'll get to that much later. Like the Sumerians, I need to discuss a bit of the religion, language, and society of the Elamites, but in a much briefer fashion. The Elamites were polytheistic. Overall, modern knowledge about their religion is minimal. What is known is that at one time they had a pantheon headed by a goddess sometimes called Kiri Rasha, and other times referred to as Pini Kur. According to the Cambridge Ancient History, quoting, This predominance of a supreme goddess is probably a reflection from the practice of matriarchy, which at all times characterized Elamite civilization to a greater or to a lesser degree. End quote. There will be much more on the matriarchy in a minute. 
Other deities included Jabra, their lord of the underworld. Like I mentioned before, Elamite, the language, has been traditionally thought to be a language with no other related language. Essentially, this probably means that it developed because the people who used it were somewhat isolated from others. Or maybe it was because of Babel. A few researchers have proposed that the Elamite language could be related to the Munda language of India. Some researchers propose that it's related to the Hmong Khmer language of Cambodia, and others to the modern Dravidian languages of India or Sri Lanka, such as Tamil, in contrast to the majority who denote it as an isolated language. The language could be written in cuneiform, which was adapted from the Akkadian writing of Assyria and Babylonia. Very early surviving documents were written very differently, using what has become known as Linear Elamite. In 2006 AD, two very older inscriptions in a similar script were discovered in Jaraf, well east of Alam, but still in present-day Iran. This led archaeologists to speculate that Linear Elamite had originally spread from further east to Susa. It seems to have developed from an even earlier writing known as Proto-Elamite, but scholars dispute whether or not this script was used to write Elamite or another language, as it has not yet been deciphered. The Elamite language may have survived as late as the early Islamic period, to about the 8th century AD. Now this podcast wouldn't be complete without touching on one of the somewhat unique aspects of this society. At times, Elam was a matriarchal society, with women leading men in essentially all of society. In general, women's rights in Mesopotamia were not equal to those of men. But in early periods, women were free to go out to the marketplaces, buy and sell, attend to legal matters for their absent husbands, own their own property, borrow and lend, and engage in business for themselves. High-status women, such as priestesses and members of royal families, may have been literate and may also have been given considerable administrative authority. Numerous powerful goddesses were worshipped. In fact, in some city-states, they were the primary deities. The position of women varied between city-states and changed over time. But it was not all the same for everyone. There was an enormous gap between the rights of high-status and low-status women. Just as there was an enormous gap between the rights of high-status and low-status men. Also, almost half the population in the late Babylonian period were slaves, thereby having no social power. The status of women, as defined by their social power and freedom, sharply diminished during the Assyrian era, which began around 1400 BC. Not to forget, the first evidence of laws requiring the public veiling of elite women came from this period. And with that, I'll wrap up this episode. Next week, I'll begin the history of the Canaanites. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, so you'll get the episodes as soon as they are released. One more thing go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Of all the requests I make, this one has got to be the most important. The number of reviews increases the ranking, which in turn makes it easier for other listeners to find it. And if you didn't quite notice, my seasonal allergies are acting up again, 
so bear with me for the next week or so, and my voice will be back to normal. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.